Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Nowhere Podcast. Technology is constantly running in the background of our lives, yet for most of us, it's invisible. On Nowhere, we explore the intended and unintended influences that geospatial technology has on the real world. These are the stories of how geospatial tech unexpectedly affects our lives. I'm Jonathan Newfeld, CEO of TechTerra and host of Nowhere. Today, my guests are Dr. Lynn Mormon, Professor of Physical Geography at Mount Royal University in Calgary, and Andrew Ovik, Smart Ice Nunavut Operations Lead in Pond Inlet. Hi, Andrew, Lynn, thanks for being here. Thank you so much, John, for having us here. Yeah, it's great to have you, and I'm excited to talk about uh, the Smart Ice program happening in, in the north of Canada. So Inuit people across the northern Canada rely on land-fast sea ice each year. For our, our listeners in the south, tell me what the sea ice means to you and to your community. The ice means a lot to us. It's part of who we are because we've been using it since we've known. And we got so many terms and so many use for ice alone. Um, it's a part of who we are. We travel on it to go to our hunting grounds and travel to another community. Yeah, and that sea ice forms an important part of your culture in terms of movement and access and, as far as I understand, things like hunting especially. Yes, that is correct. We, we use uh, sea ice to go hunting and travel on snowmobile for many hours. And it's not just a day trip. You have to know what you're doing out there also. Having that knowledge is important. Mm-hmm. So given the importance of sea ice to the Inuit communities, how does the community know how to stay safe when hunting and traveling on the ice? Word of mouth comes around quickly. We have great communication system here for my community where we use um, handheld VHF radio to communicate. And the knowledge about, about safe ice and ice travel from what I understand, it's generally held by elders and, and passed down. Is that correct? It has been orally passed down from generations, from generations. That's how my father taught me is how to read the land, how to read the ice. And his knowledge came from his father and so forth. And so it would be a very experiential thing as well, with the ice being part of your culture and in your community a big important part of it is, is being on the ice and learning in place. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, that, that is totally correct. There's nothing else being like in the actual location, being on actual ice, getting that feeling on each step you take out on the ice. There's nothing else like it. You can read about it. You can watch documentaries about it. But being out there on the ice itself, there's nothing else like it. Yeah, I believe that. Absolutely. It seems like the sort of thing that would only really hit home for someone when they experience it. You know, even a Southerner like me, I could imagine you have to be there to really understand. Once you're up here and during springtime out on the ice, you'll, you'll get a sense of awe moments when, when you're out on the ice and out on the land. It's really comforting and also therapeutic for, for me, at least. And I know that over time, that the generational knowledge transfer has, has changed a little bit. Can you maybe tell me a little bit about what's happening in the North and, and how that knowledge transfer is, is changing? Right now, like we we're saying, knowledge was passed on orally before. But today we have printers and computers and 
that are available and we are able to document what we learn from our elders and have that knowledge documented and be available for the community. So Lynn, maybe tell me a little bit about the Smart Ice program, how it got started and, and how you got involved as a professor of geography. Yeah, thanks, John. I will leave it to Andrew maybe to talk a little bit more about Smart Ice as a whole because Smart Ice is a social enterprise and it has lots of working parts. Our project is just one of those. So Andrew actually plays a role in many of the different facets of the um, Smart Ice initiatives, which uh, we're very appreciative of because he brings a lot of his knowledge from those other positions in Smart Ice to our project. Ours is called Asikumik Kauyumajiti. And Andrew will correct me if I've pronounced it wrong, but I've been practicing a lot. And Siku means ice. And our project title means uh, a tool to know how the ice is. SmartIce is really working towards a co-development approach as a solution. So as we know, technology can provide other perspectives. And so what we're doing is in the communities, learning more about remote sensing and GIS. So learning how to see the ice through remote sensing and then map it in the GIS. There's 68 terms for different ice conditions and ice features. So this is where the co-development comes into place because I'm learning those as well. So I'm I'm learning about what we might see on the remote sensing image while Andrew's also learning about how to do remote sensing. So it's very much a co-developed program with the ultimate outcome of creating maps that indicate ice safety and, and dangerous conditions for the community near real time and in the language and with the terminology that the community uses. It's an incredible project and I, I'm glad to see the co-development of a traditional oral knowledge and a Southern technology being applied to it. It seems like a really good mix to combine the two. Andrew, Lynn mentioned there that the, the ice conditions are changing. Is that a climate change issue? Is that being driven by the, the changing climate we're experiencing? We are noticing the climate warming. And even in my lifetime, I noticed that the ice is forming a little later each year and breaking off a little each year. And what Smart Ice is able to do is provide in real time data information for the community so they can be aware of the ice conditions. And so my understanding is that with this this project under Smart Ice, you're combining satellite-based radar data with that traditional knowledge. Andrew, do you want to walk me through the process of what it looks like to create some of these maps and, and the process you've undergone in creating this technology? Making maps is one of the many ways that Smart Ice monitors the ice. In order for us to make the maps, we try and include our community knowledge, which regular maps, which I've never seen before, has. And we include where the pollinias are so people can be aware of them and they can avoid going to those areas. And we include thin ice areas because um, they tend to break easily than the regular land fast ice. So the community can be aware of that. And there are satellite images that are available today, more and more that are available. But not everyone is trained to interpret the images. That's where Smart Ice and Lynn Warman has come in. So we look at an image and determine what we're looking at. And if we're unsure of what we're looking at, 
I'm the on-ground guy who goes to the site, who takes pictures and take notes of what we're looking at at an image so we can know next time at a next image that it's the same thing that we looked at last time. Oh, okay. I, I like that. So you're ground truthing your data then. When you see something in the radar that doesn't make sense, you can actually go out to that spot in the real world and take pictures and images. And then next time when you see it, you'll know what you're looking at. Yeah. And maybe I'll speak to that too. That's a really important component of our training. So, you know, this work just doesn't happen, right? So we have a lot of training that goes along with this co-development and part of that co-development is figuring out exactly what do we need in terms of training? How do we train best? And how then do we transfer that training from, you know, I'm coming in as the a technical expert, but Andrew is easily picking up all that expertise, but then also bringing in his traditional knowledge. So his skills in terms of remote sensing interpretation are fantastic. And he sees things in the ice, I don't. So this is a really important part of the project is the training and being out on the ice. Like Andrew said, you learn it through that experiential process. In April, we went out on the ice, Andrew and I and the rest of the team, and we were able to actually see on the ground what we saw on the imagery. And it was a very, it was the aha moment for a lot of the participants. And understanding too, you know, we're dealing with radar, so you can see smooth snow but you can have rough ice underneath. So just understanding radar principles and radar imagery better from being out on the ice. When I talk about experiential, I mean, like we walk out a pixel on the ice so that you can tell how much ground cover is incorporated into that one value. And uh, again, we compare the radar image to what we're seeing on the ice. And again, you know, for our Southern listeners, how thick is the ice typically when, when you're out there? Uh, I know it takes some time to form up, but how thick is that ice when it's land fast like that? It ranges from three feet to six feet. And people will travel on it by snowmobile when it's about two feet. And when it's less than that, people tend to walk on it just to be safe. And so they won't drown their snowmobile. And that's one of the things that we try and teach our local people, too, is how to check the ice when walking. And knowing that you're on thin ice is when to use a harpoon. When you use a harpoon, if you strike it once and it goes through, it's not safe to walk on. But if you strike it twice and it doesn't go through, it's safe to walk on. And if you strike it three times and it doesn't go through, Right here, Andrew ran out of internet for the month and dropped the call. He's in Pond Inlet on the northern tip of Baffin Island, and I suspect it's not easy to get internet there. I think he was going to say, if you strike it three times and it doesn't go through, it's safe to ride a skidoo on. Lynn and I carried on talking about the maps they're making, and we'll catch up with Andrew again in a few minutes. And that's the kind of information, when we talk about maps, like that's our project, is making these maps so people can spatially see what's happening with the ice. But included on there are messages pertaining to the particular season and the dangers that might be on the ice. So, for instance, uh, don't travel alone on the ice in, in these dangerous areas. Make sure you bring your harpoon and check the ice as well. So those kind of messages, those intergenerational messages um, are important to put on the map as well. 
And how does the community have access to this information? So how do, how do they get the maps? Each Inuit cartographer has a large format printer. So in one way, we'll be actually printing out the maps and posting them around the community in uh, common areas so that anybody without a computer or maybe not on social media would have a chance to see that information. But of course, there's social media and Facebook has actually been the best way of getting the map information out. Sometimes we'll put polls with the map as well, just to find out what places people are interested in for the next week. Or also ground truthing our mapped interpretations. So in the beginning, we talked about knowledge transfer and, and people's ability to go on the ice. Has this project within the Smart Ice program made a difference in people's ability to, to travel on the ice and, and to experience the ice? Yeah, well, I will just speak to um, my perspective on that. In April, I was in Pond Inlet and we were showing the maps in our, our project at the, the flea market on the weekend. And we had some young travelers on the ice who said they were listening to elders and their family members about where to go. But this gave them that overall perspective of where where different features are to be careful and, and some different types of features like the polinias or the open water that uh, Andrew mentioned before. You know, where those are and where to be extra careful. And of course, we're digitizing the traditional knowledge as well, the sea ice IQ and putting that on the maps. So that is also, again, helping that intergenerational knowledge so people do feel, the people I've talked to, and I should let Andrew clarify that as well, but the people I've talked to do feel better seeing the maps and knowing and having more knowledge about uh, the ice as they go up. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for being here. I, I really appreciate getting the chance to talk to you about Smart Ice and this project. Thank you so much. I really appreciate talking to you as well, Jen. After Lynn and I finished talking, I called Andrew back so that we could finish our conversation on the phone. Hello. Hey, Andrew, it's John. How are you? Hey, John. I'm, I'm doing good. Yourself? I'm doing well. Part of what we talked about earlier was, you know, people being able to go out on the ice in the winter safely and the community members having access to it. Have you noticed a big difference after producing these maps and are more community members feeling safe to go out on the ice? Well, at first, when, I, when we started making these maps, I wasn't even sure if anybody was looking at the maps or even seeing the maps. So I, I asked an elder here in the community, and what he told me was that once people see something wrong with the image or the map, they'll let me know right away because word of mouth comes around quick here. And if they, if they see something that's not right on the map, they'll let me know right away. And that was pretty reassuring to me coming from an owner. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, that means that people are using them and looking at them and, and then adding their own information back into it, right? And, and checking with the elders about what makes sense. Yeah, that, that's true. Yeah, um, I was really happy that an elder had told me that. And I had people asking me when, when the next map will be put out. That's excellent. Map once a week. Once the ice was forming and once the ice was starting to break off. When does the ice start to form up there and, and when do you expect to start putting out the maps? It will start snowing before the ice starts forming. So we usually start snowing in October. Some years our kids go trick-or-treating by snowmobile and some years we go by car. Mm -hmm. It's always different every year. But it's usually around late October, and the ice will start forming around mid-November. 
that's when I'll start making the maps again. Making maps is one of the ways we monitor the ice. There are a couple of instruments that we use to check the conditions of the sea ice. One is a mobile sensor. We call it a smart kamuti. It's a sensor that's on a sled towed behind a snowmobile. And as we drive along the sea ice, it gives an actual number of how thick the ice is. We will have a tough pad in between our handlebars, and it will give us an actual number of how thick the ice is as we go along the trail on the ice. So you get a real-time feedback from the, the smart Kematic to see how thick it is as you're going. Yes, and I get a lot of great kick out of it when I see people out on the ice and I show them how the instrument works, what it's doing. And the smart Kematic, is it ground-penetrating radar that it uses? Yes, it is, it is a ground-penetrating radar. Um, the instrument is called EM-31. This instrument down south is used to locate underground pipes. And what we're doing up here with the instrument is to use it to check the ice conditions, how, how thick the ice is. Right, and ice is a fantastic environment for ground-penetrating radar because it can bounce right off the water and come back, right? Yeah, because uh, salt conducts electricity, we're able to get our reading that way. And so we have the smart Kematic, and I understand you also have the smart smart buoy? Yeah, we have a smart buoy. This instrument is about 12, 12 feet high with PVC, PVC pipes in, on the sides. And there are at least 46 thermistors lined up in the middle. And it has a built-in GPS and a transmitter. And I don't choose where where to do deploy these smart buoys. I attend community meetings and ask my smart ice committee members where I should be deploying the smart buoys. And what these smart buoys does is they they read the temperature of the water, ice, snow, and air, and we're able to get that information back in the community in a warm place. And so the smart buoy then would tell you how thick the ice is as it freezes, right? That the thermistors would register a change as that freezes. Yes, that's correct. That's very cool. So the smart buoys give you point data, the smart Kamachik gives you line data, and then the, the uh, satellite radar gives you uh, polygon data and fills in the, the spaces in between. Yep, that's correct. Smart Ice has won some significant international awards, including the Arctic Inspiration Prize, the so-called Nobel of the North. But I'd really like to know what this project means for you personally and, and how it's affected you. Arctic Net Inspiration Prize, we won, Smart Ice won back in 2016. And with that funding, we were able to expand to other northern communities, the communities who contacted Smart Ice and wanted our service. So we don't we don't barge into a community and tell the community that they need our service. They have to come to us first in order for everything to work properly and to have a proper operator that can go out regularly along the ice and check the conditions for their community. It must mean a lot to the community to have you there producing that knowledge and, and sharing it with everyone to help maintain safety and give people the chance to be out on the ice in a way that makes them aware of what's going on and, and adding to the traditional knowledge. I agree. And um, There's no other maps that are being produced like this. The only maps that are available regarding ice is mainly 
where the ships... The ships would want something different, right? They would want to know where the thin ice is, and, and you want to know where the thick ice is. Yeah, that's true. What I do is mainly for my community. If an organization is asking for our service, I have to contact my people and see if it's okay with my community here in the community. And if I get the green light, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. I like that. It keeps it within the community and, and makes sure that the service is in alignment with the values of the community, right? And and the technology and the, the product there, it stays aligned with the values of the people. I really like that. Yes. We're all community-based and data never leaves the community and it will be available for the people here whenever they wish to see it. So what's next for this project? What what do you see coming up this winter and in following winters? More training to other northern communities. Um, we have been asked to go to um, Resolute and Greasy or I look after the Pikikdaluk region of Nunavut, so that keeps me pretty busy with the training. And also, we're planning to use drones in the future, so we're, if we're un, unsure of the ice conditions, we'll use a, a drone with a sensor that could let us know of current conditions when we go out. That's very cool. I like that. And another way to stay safe when you're out there, since you don't have to actually travel over that portion of the ice to see what's going on. Yep, that's true. Well, thank you, Andrew. I really appreciate you being here and, and recording this podcast with me. Yeah, no problem. It was, it was great to talk with you, John. Yeah, it was really great to meet you. This is the Nowhere Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Neufeld. You can find Nowhere at nowherepodcast.com on Twitter at nowhere underscore pod, and you can find me at John underscore Neufeld. See you later.